Welcome to this episode of The Aftermath. This week we talked about the two letters to the Thessalonians written by Paul. What thoughts do you have coming out of it? Yeah, like I thought it was funny that you referenced like the leadership lesson because like uh, I think, I don't know if we can give Paul the credit for the compliment sandwich, but like, <laughs> but, like any uh, like podcast or training seminar or, you know, communication thing that I ever went to, they talk about this type of communication where you do, you know, compliment, praise, and then address the issue and then wrap it up with, you know, more compliment and, and praise. <laughs> so I thought, I thought it was funny that you brought that up because it's like, yeah, that's, that's a solid leadership tip. Um, and I, I feel like it works across not just Christianity, but like if you're in business or whatever and you got to talk to an employee, like. Yeah, right. This, and, it's a good and call. It's definitely Paul, it seems to be Paul's mode or formula where he, he greets everyone. He usually gives a Thanksgiving for them. He tells them what they're doing great. And then he comes in and hammers them with what needs to be addressed. But, and the two letters are different. The first one is, is really a positive letter. It's one of the most positive, you know, everybody says Philippians is the one that's like him gushing and sort of the, the letter of love, brotherly love, all that kind of stuff. But First Thessalonians is right up there with it. You know, he's, he's gotten this great report from Timothy. And so he's yeah. writing in response to that to encourage them to continue and to do even more. And then it's Second Thessalonians where he has to kind of come down hard on them. I think too, like he's built a relationship with them. Like right. this dude was run out of town. <laughs> so like he, he has the cred with them to come down hard when he needs to. And I think that's probably where a lot of, you know, maybe ministers, business leaders, like other people mess up is they don't have the relationship to come down hard. And I'm sure you've, you've seen that where someone has no idea what their employee or their congregation is going through. And then they come down hard on them with, with no knowledge of the situation and no real relationship to fall back on. Yeah, you just can't come right out of the gate and start criticizing people without first building some relationship. And, and like you said, having some understanding about why things are happening the way that they're happening. I think they, that gets missed a lot though. So. Well, and, and in the Thessalonians, particularly that Second Thessalonians reality, it, you know, it's, it was people who were just deciding they weren't going to work anymore because the second coming of God was going to happen or Jesus was going to happen at any moment. So what's the point in working and saving money and, and doing anything? And they're just going to sit around and enjoy the moment knowing that he's going to come back any moment. And that was brought about in some, in some measure because of the first letter in which he was talking about that second coming and the apocalyptic reality of the world that it, at any moment Jesus could return. So he almost had kind of done it himself in some respect. He had definitely fed into that, but he knew that, it's to your point, like he, he knew what was causing it, what was creating it. So that second letter was writing to correct the misunderstanding that had come out of the first one and probably the teaching that he had been giving while he was there for whatever, however, whatever period that was. I feel like in every one of these letters, like that Paul writes, his kind of, his love for the people really shows through, like in his care for, I guess, I, I, his care for the gospel, that it doesn't get tainted, that the actions of the community aren't misconveying or miscommunicating the gospel to other people. I just think that's very thoughtful. You're absolutely right. He does know his communities to the first point, and then to this one, he in every one of his letters is striking this balance between what is sort of the objective truth of the gospel to make sure that it stays pure and true, but that's all within the context of the community that he knows and is to writing to. And that's sort of an important thing to keep in the mind as you're going through these is that there is the objective gospel, the truth of the gospel, which he is 
at great pains to make sure that everyone understands and, and stays clean and pure and, and doesn't get defiled by other you know, false teachers or problematic theologies and, and the like. But then he, he's also addressing in every letter particular circumstances. And we have to do the work of trying to get behind the letter to some extent to understand yeah. what's going on in order to understand how we ought to interpret what he's saying. That can be tricky. I'm just realizing at 32, like, that there's a difference between the gospel, which he's very um, articulate about communicating and wants to stay very pure. And then these, uh, the other things that he says that are directed at a community for a purpose. Yeah. And that's kind of a gray line, right? And it's kind of like, where is the, it takes wisdom and the Spirit's leading and uh, reflecting on the entire church history and how these things have been interpreted in different contexts to, to try to figure out like, what is Paul saying as objective universal truth? And what is he saying as a particular contextual instruction? I think as a general rule, you think about who Paul was and what his commission from Jesus was, it was to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And so I think pretty accurately and and rightly, we can say whenever Paul's talking about the message and the truth of the gospel, he's preaching, that's his commission. That's that's his wheelhouse. And when he goes on to talk about some of these other sort of community-related things, you know, that's Paul certainly directed and empowered, you know, and given wisdom by the Holy Spirit, but talking to, into a particular context. And so the question then becomes, okay, well, gospels, the gospel right. truths are certainly universal. To what extent are these other truths things that we need to be in tune with? Or are they, is it a matter of understanding what the context was and, and what the sort of the principle was out of that context and then asking, okay, how do we take that principle and apply it to our context? I think that's probably the wiser read, way to read a lot of the yeah. uh, the stuff that surrounds the gospel message for Paul. Yeah, that's the work I don't think we're taught to do a lot of times. We take all the all the stuff in there as universal truths, and we end up with and, and you reference reference this Sunday. Uh, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So cutting off anybody on welfare, right. like no, you're not working, you shouldn't eat. But that was directed at them because people were stopping working because of the understanding of the second coming they had. Right, right. And and I think the principle, you know, when we talk about the sort of underlying principle is don't come into the church and be a lazy leech. Come in willing to do the thing that you're able to do, the thing you're right. gifted to do. Uh, be a partner with the community. Um, bring whatever it is that God has called you to, to the community in order to give and to worship. And then wherever it is in your life that you need help, well, that's where the church can help you. But if, if everyone comes to the community prepared to give the thing that they have to offer, well, if person A has something that person B needs, well, we can essentially trade, right? And, and we support each other in that way. And, and if we get a right. large community of people coming together that are willing and able to do that, well, then we, we really, you really got something in which everybody is supporting each other and, and codependent and interdependent and loving on each other rather than just, I was just saying, yeah, rather, I, than, I rather than just coming oh, with the question, like, what can I get out of it? I think we need to come and say, what can I give? Yeah, it, it's really interesting from like a like almost like an economic standpoint. Like Paul is setting up some sort of <laughs> like it's like Christian trade and business association within the church, so we don't have to be dependent upon. I don't know what was going on, you know, in the day. You know, like I understand that like Christians were like outcasts and may not have been able to uh, do as much in the market because of being Christian, whether it was persecution or like. No, you're a Jew. You don't shop at the Christian place or whatever. 
but he's kind of set up these just trade and barter systems within the church, which is like super interesting and super, uh, I don't think I've ever like thought about that before. Again, I don't think that's a principle that we take and put into our situation and say, only go to Christian, Christian shops, don't go anywhere else, right? Like, yeah, but but I, there are no, people that no, do take that out of yeah. it. And I think that's definitely a wrong reading. And I think what you're saying is much truer that they were in a context in which the pressure and the persecution that they were, you know, sometimes it was being fed to lions, but most often it was just a social pressure and sort of being ignored and and thrust to the side in which they were sort of left to their own devices to sort of care for one another and whoever else they could. You know, in, in that first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul basically says, and I think I quoted that on Sunday, was that you, you ought to be productive, not provocative. Right. It's almost in that context in which being a Christian was almost asking for trouble. Uh, he was saying, kind of keep your head down, take care of yourself, follow God, bring those in that you can, but let's not just be, be troublemakers for trouble's sake. Like that's just asking for, for more trouble. Yeah. You talked about, you know, Paul kind of made a correction to their understanding of the second coming. Like the second coming has implications on the way that we should be living. And and I think there, there's probably some, probably some correction to our understanding of the second coming that needs to happen, you know, even now, <laughs> as far as the implications on the way that we're living. The people in Thessalonica they thought this is going to happen soon, so it really doesn't matter if we're working. We should just, I don't know, focus solely on on God. I, I, I think like in our context, like people leave out that work, our work with our hands it is part of our worship to God too. Yeah, and I think that, that comes back to understanding that we are people of the kingdom and that we live in this in-between period in which the kingdom has been inaugurated but not fully consummated. But what that means is, the work that we do matters. And to the extent that we have this sort of bizarre or, or distorted eschatology view of the end time that says God is going to destroy this place and create something new, well, then what we do here really doesn't matter. You know, and, and it's, it's that mentality that's led to, for generations, you know, a lack of creation care. I mean, why, why worry about this world if God's going to destroy it and replace it? But in reality, what we read and in, in all indication is that it's not that this will be destroyed, but this will be sort of remade. And that everything that we do as part of the kingdom now somehow plays into that. And so what we do matters, right? We are very, very tangibly and really, in a real way, building the kingdom uh, that God will come and finally institute when Jesus comes back. And so, so it does matter. Uh, but again, that, that takes that sort of eschatological and apocalyptic view, you have to understand that, that that's coming and that's what we're, we're marching towards. It's not just we're here to, you know, basically believe God and go about our business and someday fly off to heaven and live on a cloud and play a harp. We are actively participating <laughs> in some way, which we don't, we don't even know yet. Probably we're going to get to it and look back and be like, oh, that's what was going on. Um, so I don't want to say anything too definitive about it, but in some way, what we do now does matter. And so that's sort of, what, I guess, what I could say, like an eschatological mindset that we understand that what we do now is going to matter for the new heaven and new earth. The other piece that's at play here is what Paul was really talking about in these two letters is, is an apocalyptic mindset. And that is that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, as the judge, will be coming back at any moment to do that, right? And so, like, that moment is coming, and we need to be living with a that anticipation, so one is sort of like a, f a framework. The other is sort of like puts you on edge a little bit, uh, gives everything an urgency. 
Um, and yeah. clearly in that first generation, we see in a number of the letters, the Gospels, and the other writings that we have, this uh, expectation that that was going to happen real soon. And so it was easy, easier for them to live with that mindset. There's this urgency that we got to do the work, we got to get the word out, we got to spread the gospel, like that, the, that great commission has to happen quickly. Like we got to go do it because at any moment he's coming back. We obviously are 2,000 years later, and so that urgency has certainly dulled for us. And I think we need to sort of recapture yeah. that. And that's not to say that, hey, we're living in the end times and Jesus is coming tomorrow, but we need to realize that it could be. And we need to live our life with that expectancy and a little bit of urgency and just make sure that, you know, we allow that urgency to set our priorities. Maybe that's the best way to think about it. You know, right. like I think back to the, the letter of James, I think it's in the fourth chapter. He's talking, when he's talking to the merchants, you know, he, he, was, he says basically, you guys, you people, you have all these plans. And what you should be saying is, I'm going to go to the market tomorrow if, if God allows it. You know, it's sort of like every day is a gift. Every day could be your last day. You know, all, all that kind of like phraseology, but it puts the sense of sort of immediacy and urgency to the whole project that, that is largely lost, I think, in our church culture. Yeah, I think like two of the things that you referenced from James and like I love how this it all fits together <laughs> and like there's not a whole lot of like disunity between what Paul's saying from one place to the next. The rich people, one of the things you said is they're going to be judged and like Paul makes that pretty um, obvious in, in James, like people who have, you know, resources and these kind of things like you're going to you're going to be judged on what you did with it. And and for the for the poor people, he says be peaceful. And that just on a practical level, like it does a lot for me, you know, like, cause I have to think about what am I doing with my resources? And then beyond that, am I a peaceful person? Am I promoting the kingdom in a peaceful way? Or right. am I, you know, part of an uprising? <laughs> Those were two very, like for, for me, just like real practical things that I could kind of like I can hash this out now, and these are the kind of things I need to keep in my mind. When you put those two things together, what you're talking about from James, where he's you know admonishing the the wealthy and the ones who are the oppressors to stop, that God hears them, and at any moment God the judgment is coming. And then you know the flip side of that, as you mentioned, those who are being oppressed, he's encouraging not not to be violent, to to be peaceful. That at any moment God is coming to set things right. You have that message, and then you add to it this apocalyptic mindset coming out of Paul, which echoes this thought or feeling that Jesus is coming as the judge and that could happen at any moment, you put those things together and you get a story, a narrative that you can live into that is compelling and does help you focus on the most important things. To the extent that we lose any of those right. pieces, well, then you're, you're playing with less than a full deck and you don't have the whole picture. Paul, he says, you know, hey, for the people of Thessalonica, they love each other. And he kind of admonished, he's like, y'all, y'all love each other keep doing that, do it more, love each other more. But like also beyond you, you have to show love, not, not only to yourself, but right. like they were being persecuted, right? From the Jews, from the Romans. And he's like, also like love those people too. That's like the, you know, two of the, <laughs> the main sermons that we preach is, you know, love the body and love people outside of the body. You could see here, the people in Thessalonica maybe had some sort of issue loving people outside of the body. You know, I don't know if it was in regards to how to do it. You know, maybe they didn't really, you know, because they were in a situation where they were being uh, oppressed, they had issues loving those people. But I think Paul sets a precedent with how to do it. And it's, it's through our work, you know, uh, getting our hands dirty and, you know, going out there about your business and yeah. being a quiet and peaceful people. You're right. There, there's, there's some scholarly debate 
about what the persecution was. Were they really being persecuted violently or just socially? But whatever the answer to that is, they definitely felt as though they were being persecuted. And he's, I think, I think one of the maybe the best ways to sort of summarize both James and and certainly these two letters to the Thessalonians that Paul writes is don't lose sight of the big picture. Keep right. the big picture, the end goal, the thing that you know God is doing and we are now working towards in front of you at all times and make sure that the things that you do are driving towards that end goal, right? Are, are purposefully directed towards the kingdom and, and the restoration that God has promised. I think probably if that's probably the best yeah. way I could summarize it. Yeah, I mean, to put things into kind of like a system, like we have Jesus as the foundation, like for this kingdom. And then like these pillars, you know, of, of loving God and loving your church family and, and loving the world. Like, and then Paul gives kind of specific or, or even just general advice on how to do all those things. Like when you kind of look at it that way, you give it a little bit of structure, like kind of helps me to understand like, okay, this is part of the gospel that, that Paul is trying to keep pure, that right. we should love people. That's super simple, but like like we said, the more you dig into it, like, yeah, that's right. That's a main point. Keep the main thing the main thing, and everything will be all right from there. We're going to get into it this this week, so I don't want to go too far into it, but as a, as a way, by way of a, a little preview and sort of furthering the, that line of thought, like the the meaning of righteousness, we have since really the, really the first century kind of the church has adopted this platonic view. And, what, and Pla- one of the things Plato was talking about is in his system of the world, his metaphysical system, which is a big fancy way of saying the way that the world is put together and operates, there were the ideal images of a thing. So if, if you're thinking about a chair, there was like the ideal ultimate quintessential chair that existed some, somewhere on a plane, a plane of like heightened reality. And every chair that exists in our world is a representation that tries to mimic that objective chair. Does that make sense? And so there were things and objects like that, yeah. but there were also concepts, um, justice and love. These were all, there was an ob- objective reality out there and the ways in which we embodied those were sort of a, a shadow of that real thing. And, and obviously the more that you could approach that objective truth or that objective reality or uh, you know, quality or whatever it is, the, the, the more virtuous you were, the better off you were, the more moral you were in, in, in those terms. So as the church begins to sort of think about, think through the platonic thought that's in the Greco-Roman world, we sort of adopt that understanding when it comes to things like justice and righteousness, that there is this thing called righteousness, it's a quality, and as Christians we talk about it, it's this quality of God, and we are righteous or more to the point, unrighteous, to the extent that we fail to live up to that standard. Uh, that's not what righteousness meant in the Old Testament. Righteousness was bound up with relationship. And as I said, we'll go deep into this this week on Sunday, but to be righteous was to meet and fulfill your obligations in the midst of relationship. So you were righteous if, you were righteous in relationship to God if you lived in accordance with the covenant that God has set out. You have met your obligations to that relationship. And God was righteous because he always was faithful to his covenant and to his obligations to the people of Israel and to the, to the world that he created, which throws into stark relief kind of the ways we thought about righteousness and justice, right? To be, I've mentioned in the past, like God's justice is a matter of setting things right. It's not necessarily tipping the balance of the scales in the way we think about justice. 
And that's because the way we think about justice is this platonic purity moral code. And what God means by justice and righteousness is, are we living in a right relationship with one another and with God? Like it all comes to that. Like that's what the, the biblical oh, man. Old Testament Hebraic understanding of righteousness was, right? And so when you say, at, you know, for example, when we talk about Abraham, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to be righteous. He wasn't reckoned to be righteous because all of a sudden he was pure and blameless and no sin, but he was righteous because he had stepped into a right relationship with God. He met his obligations towards God. And so when that relationship gets reestablished in that instance, well, that's, that's what it means to be righteous, is to be in relationship rightly with one another. So God's call to be righteous, to be just, has everything to do with living rightly in accordance with one another and with God. And less, it certainly has to do with behaving properly and rightly, but it, to be righteous is not to be blameless. It is to be properly oriented to God and to other people. Dude, mind blown. I mean, that shouldn't be mind blowing, but but like, wow. Yeah, we're gonna get yeah. we're so gonna that, get into that's next kind week, of the then. Old Testament examples and 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 how we know yeah. this and more about what that is and how it plays out and how Paul then uses that because it's obviously justice and righteousness is a huge theme in almost all of his letters, clearly in Romans. Um, but if we don't understand, like it's our understanding of righteousness has been skewed largely from Luther on. Uh, because of the way that he understood it in light of his context. He read his context back onto the first century. And it's not that what Luther was saying is false. It's just that when you read it that way, you miss this huge other picture in peace. And so righteousness gets flattened. Yeah, yeah right. It's like a fo- um, forest for we, the we trees. We flatten what is this big concept of relationship and community with one another and with God into are you living in accordance with the standard of good, good action and good behavior? One of the things you reference, like, if you can kind of unpack this, like you talked about Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit for me? Yeah. So resurrection, this is is a huge conversation, but resurrection in that second temple Judaism and that world was meant a particular thing. And if you, as we look and pick apart like the, the Greek mythology um, and sort of the pagan ideology resurrection was, there, there was, there was coming back from the dead that, that happened. Um, but resurrection in, in the sense of there will come a time when the gods would bring everyone back to life. Well, that, that wasn't a thing that wasn't on, on the, the horizon for them. For Israel, depending on which tradition you sat in, it was a thing. And this is one of, this is the primary debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees held to a resurrection of the faithful of Israel, of the righteous, right? Those that had lived into the relationship with God would be resurrected. The Sadducees did not believe that. But to the extent that you were sort of in that Pharisaic school or you, one of the other sects that was leaning towards resurrection, it was this end time, God comes back to fulfill his promises and there will be a day when everyone, everyone who is faithful will be resurrected in bodily form. And so it is not a spiritual soul going to heaven idea. It was very much a tangible physical body being brought back. And, it, it, you know, it's different from kind of being brought back from the dead. It, to be resurrected is to be given in some ways a new, new form, a new body, uh, especially as it m- kind of moves into Christianity. When I'm talking with my kids and they have questions, we talk about, you know, getting our forever bodies, which are probably going to be different than what we have now. I can't say that for sure, but probably. When Jesus was resurrected, we've talked to, before about how 
Jesus as the Messiah was sort of earth-shattering and unexpected in as much as the, the Messiah was expected to be this conquering king. The idea that your Messiah would be crucified made no sense. And the idea that Messiah would be God himself, that was not on their grid e- either. That was, that was completely unexpected. So that they're right out of the gate in terms of the incarnation. That's something that they were not expecting as it kind of blew, their, blew the minds. And it's one of the reasons that devout and faithful Jews had trouble swallowing this idea that Jesus was the Messiah is because, well, Messiah doesn't get crucified. Like, that's nowhere in the text. Um, at least they didn't expect it. We certainly look back on Isaiah's servant songs and, and can point to, well, yeah, it does. It, it's in that story. But they were not putting all that together in the way that we now understand it. But the other thing that was not expected at all is that there would be a singular person, in this case, Jesus, the Messiah, that was resurrected apart from everyone else. The resurrection was something that would happen for everyone all at once. It was a one-time thing. And so what Paul is talking about and, and alluding to is that the fact that Jesus was resurrected, one, is a surprise. Two, justifies him as God's anointed one. What do you do with a Messiah that's, that's murdered and killed? Well, that can't be Messiah. Well, he's been brought back to life. Right? He's been resurrected. Certainly, that's God's justification and uh, seal of approval on the fact that this is the Messiah. But two, the fact that he has been resurrected shows us and proves to us and is the promise that we all, those of us who are righteous that live into that relationship, that believe in him as Messiah, we too shall be resurrected. And that also, of course, points to this eschatology and this apocalyptic mindset that there is coming the day when the down payment for which Jesus was will be made in full and we will all be resurrected. So he is the first fruits, the first, the first piece of the resurrection. So it's a two-stage resurrection. It was always thought to be, in Judaic thought, a one, once and for all resurrection. And what it turns out is we've got this two-stage thing going on in which Jesus the Messiah is resurrected as the first and is the promise made and the sign that all of us shall be resurrected one day. Long answer to your question. Uh, Yeah. Well, no, I just, I I appreciate like you kind of unpacking it because it was like really quickly kind of gone over and I'm like, well, what does this mean? (laughs) So yeah, I I appreciate that. Yeah. So like, we, we kind of made like a, like a timeline. We had like a biblical timeline, like to now, like our time on earth for humans, we had like a heaven timeline and then we had like a sin and death kind of timeline. And you talked about Sunday, how like sin and death have been defeated and the implications on sin and death being defeated and the resurrection happening and Gentiles being brought into the fold is that now it's not a race-specific thing that uh, Gentiles can, can come together into that right relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And that was obviously Paul's sort of scandalous claim that got him in trouble at times. Uh, a lot of the Jewish Christians did not agree with him. Uh, there were debates around that. It's why he went and met with Peter and James. We talked about uh, last week when we talked about his background. He, one of the reasons he went was to confirm with them that they agreed. Uh, Peter obviously having his vision in which he understood that all things were now clean because of God, and that meant Gentiles are now clean, uh, agreed with Paul, and then Paul sets out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But prior to that understanding, the understanding was that you know the reality of sin and death was the thing that divorced humanity from God's presence. It was, it was the thing that meant that God could no longer be in relationship with us. And 
one of the reasons for that was that we, we as humans, something I, I read recently that kind of, one of those kind of aha moments where things get reframed for you just a little bit, but one of the things that happened was, you know, at, at creation, we were put as the rulers of this world. And one of the things that sin and death does is flip that. And, and not only do we sin against God, but we, we give, we abdicate our position of authority and subjugate ourselves to the powers of this world. So we're, God created it so that we're at the top of the hierarchy. Sin causes us to live in servitude towards other things. So to the extent that we don't recognize God in our right place, we, you know, this gets talked about in many different ways. You, you, you make idols of things. We're all going to serve something. And if we don't serve God, those idols become the things that we were supposed to rule over, we now serve. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. Um, so the, the script got flipped in a, in a bad way. And it, but that, that whole scenario, God fixes through the law for the people of Israel. Again, that's God saying, here's how you live righteously in relationship with me, right? That's what that's about. Sets them apart and different. And it was the law and the ways in which they live, particularly purity laws, circumcision, those sorts of things that said, we as Israel are different than the rest of the world. And it was the law uh, and that covenant that God established that allowed them to live in relationship with God. Well, for anyone outside Judaism, they don't have that. And so they live outside that relationship. They are by definition unrighteous, dirty, unclean. And it's because they live under the power of sin and death, right? They, have, they continue to live in a world in which they have given authority over to the powers of this world, which can, in, in many ways, be their, their own devices. Um, and that's some of what Ro Paul lays out in that first chapter of Romans. They just, you know, God gives them over to their own lusts and their own desires and passions and everything goes wrong. So what Paul is understanding, what he, what he understands is happens on the cross and through Christ is that those powers to which man has given over his authority, right, has subjugated himself, ourselves, itself, to have been defeated. So they no longer have the power that they, they once did. And once those things are defeated, there is nothing, there, there's nothing standing in the way any longer between them and God, right? So the thing that was standing in the way, sin and death, to which they had been enslaved has now been destroyed, defeated. And so there's no reason that living outside of the law, they can't also be connected to God. And it's that realization that opens up Christianity and, and the message of the gospel to the whole world outside of the law. That's awesome. That, that gives me such a reframing of like when we had that conversation, like what does it mean that sin and death are defeated? Well, to put it quite simply, it just means that, yeah, like anyone can be involved now. Like there's, there is nothing standing in our way of relationship with God. Right, right. And this is why, you know, when Paul starts having these conversations about the works of the law, don't save you anymore. Well, the, the works of the law were, were the things that you did in accordance with the law that set you apart as Israel, right? These were the things that made you righteous. It was by following the law that you lived into that relationship. And what he's saying is because of what Jesus did, it no longer requires the works of the law, right? You no longer have to live that way um, because sin and death no longer rule outside of it either. So it is by faith, not by works of the law, that we are justified, which means put into relationship with God. That's, that's deep. That's so much. <laughs> it is. We like, went further down that rabbit hole than I wanted to this week, but stay tuned. Yeah. We'll tease it out on Sunday, but. That's so awesome, man. But then, of course, in the, in the letter to the Thessalonians that we were 
dealing with this week, it is that apocalyptic mindset that really frames all of that and puts the impetus or the motivation to our hearts and souls to, to live that way and to bring others into that relationship and, and to expand the church and to do the things that God has told us to do, knowing that we are participating with God in creating this thing and at any moment it's going to come into fruition and we better have done as much as we can to help in the process. That's awesome. I'm fully in. We go, if you go back weeks, we talked about this idea of the fact that as Christians, as followers of God, we can hasten that day. Um, and so if we put that back into the picture, we, we begin to understand that what we do not only matters in terms of the construction, but also in terms of the timing. So oh, man. to the extent that we live rightly, and, and I don't know what the benchmarks are. Those aren't really laid out. Like, I, so I, I, I don't know what it necessarily means or, or what exactly we, what sort of checkboxes God has, but somehow what we do impacts can either extend or shorten the period of time until that second coming, because we have a number of references about God forestalling the second coming or our ability to participate and live rightly and hasten that day. I did not have the understanding of hasten the day like that, where it means like, I just thought it meant like uh, hope that the day came quickly or like pray that, you know, it comes quickly. Right, but right. Knowing, knowing that our partnership with God and like how we... Um, how we live in righteous relationship with people here and with God has direct impact on the timing. Oh, that's, it's certainly, that's an interesting. It is certainly implied in a number of places that that is the case, that our, our righteous living, which again means our right living in relationship with God and with other people and whatever kingdom work needs to be accomplished in this in-between period, uh, there we can, I, you know, God certainly has sort of a date and time in mind, but that's, seems to be flexible based upon how we, how we respond and how, how we live into that reality. So again, like you said earlier, like it all goes together and works together. And it's just like this amazing picture of partnership that we as followers of Christ, as sons and daughters, heirs to the kingdom, we play a, we play a role in this in some way. How it works, I don't know. What we're supposed to do, I know. Like that's laid out. We're supposed to love each other. <laughs> we're supposed to do God's justice. We're supposed to, to live in such a way that the world is restored, right? And we're supposed to be agents of that restoration. Yeah. And so we focus on that, right? And and in there some way, somehow, we are gonna help hopefully to, to hasten the second coming, the moment of eschatological reality, the consummation, the time in which the resurrection for everyone happens, the, the, the down payment, the first fruits is made good on and new heaven and new earth are reality. When Jesus talks about his yoke being easy, the revelation of what righteousness is being in right relationship with God and right relationship with people, I feel like makes justice a little bit more tangible. I think like, like we look at disenfranchised communities now and it's like, do this and do that. And hopefully we, you know, we kind of make up for the wrong that we did. But when you focus on like how we can make things better relationally, I feel like that's a lot more tangible and achievable and like, okay, let's, we can do this. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you're, as you're talking about that, like my, my initial response is if you want to boil down what justice is, it is the sacrificial act that's required on God's part towards us, but also on our part towards other people. So when you look at somebody breaking the law, for example, our modern theory of justice says, well, they have to pay the consequence and the punishment. They have to balance that scale, right? Because they've broken the law. But if we look at it in, through the lens of Jesus and, and what God has accomplished, 
and we understand justice and righteousness having everything to do with the, the putting right of the relationship, the question then becomes, okay, this person has, has messed up and messed up big. How do we fix the relationship? How do we fix the problem? The question is not how do we make them pay? The question is how do we move beyond this into a relationship oh that is restored? And that requires not punishment of them, although that can be, you know, that certainly restoration is required. So it requires, think, think to Zacchaeus, for example, his response to Jesus is to pay back anyone he's defrauded four times and give half his possessions to the poor, right? So his response requires something, right? And, 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 but it's not to be seen necessarily as a, as a punishment. It's a restorative act. For those of us who sit on the side of trying to act as a good and right judge in the here and now, the model is not to send them to jail. The model is how do we sacrifice ourselves in order to bring them back into the fold? Mm. That is justice. That is God's justice, right? How do we fix what has been broken? And if we look at the model of Jesus, what happens is we break it, he sacrifices himself to fix it. And so as we turn to the world, other people may be breaking and wronging us. How do we sacrifice ourselves to fix that situation? Wow. Um, not how do we make them pay for it? The latter is not God's justice. That's platonic, modern justice. That's setting the scales right, which is not what God is about. That's not what Christianity is about. How do we sacrificially forgive and, and restore the relationship? That's what it means to bring about justice in the midst of that. Yeah, that, that, is, uh, that is revelation, man. Like, and it puts, for me, like social justice and those kind of things and so much of a better perspective because I think right now we're in a punishment mindset like within the church and, and you know, like we know we've done wrong um, a, as a church and we, we know like we want to do some social justice, but reframing it in how can we sacrifice ourselves to restore relationship? That's doable. Right. Um, it is. And it's, and it's more than a relationship. I mean, if we think tangibly just about what's going on with, you know, the BLM movement, we, you know, it's easy to look at what happened over the summer and be bad, be upset, right? There was looting and fires and destruction, and there's certainly a call for justice, which says they got to pay for that, right? You've done something wrong, you got you got to follow the law. Well, God's justice doesn't say that. You know, there may you may have to, but more important than that is for those of us who look at that and are upset by that, doing God's justice means recognizing that there's a problem here. Yeah. The, the social structures, the economic structures are broken. They have been broken. We need to recognize that. And what is it going to take from us to make that situation better, right? The, the, the first inclination ought not be punish them. The first inclination ought to be, how do we fix this? What does it even mean to fix yeah. this? Like, what is, what is wrong? What have, you know, and, and, you know, put it back over into sort of the James context, as those who have been in the position of the powerful and therefore the position of the oppressor, what must we do and give up in order to bring about God's justice in this situation? And that means, how do we, how do we fix it? Well, like the, the eternal implications too on like, God's coming to judge oppressors. If we find ourselves in that position, like it would probably be a good thing for us to start addressing. Absolutely. Um, people yeah. that we are oppressing. <laughs> right. And, and that, that judgment from God, I mean, there is the, the, the big Lord's day judgment coming, uh, but in, in the context of James, when he's talking about judgment at the door, he doesn't necessarily mean and did not mean that 
the second coming was imminent. It was, there's a judgment coming. And that judgment ended up being Rome <laughs> destroying everything, massacring Jews. You know, 400,000 of them were, were murdered. The temple was destroyed. They were all sent into exile. Like the whole system they built, you know, God brought judgment through, through Rome in that instance. There's multiple ways in which God brings about his judgment upon the situation. So to your point, if we're in that position, we find ourselves in that position, which we do, we better have some urgency to the, the restoration of the problem. That puts it in context for us. Like, I don't think I saw it that way when you actually spoke about it um, in James, like a little bit, but like that puts it very here and now. And that like, it's our responsibility and uh, like we need to take care of it now. <laughs> yeah, so. and I think, I, I think in some ways that's, you know, God bringing about his judgment in the world. I also think part of that and the, the way that happens is that's just the way that the world's set up. Like those are, those are kind of like the rules. I mean, you look back yeah. through history, anytime that the powerful oppress, there, there's a tipping scale at which the those that are being subjugated, those that are being oppressed, aren't going to put up a, for it any longer. And, you know, just in terms of sheer economics and socioeconomic dynamics, like there is a point at which the rich become so wealthy and the poor become so poor that revolution is going to happen. Like that doesn't that doesn't yeah. take a, a, a prophet hearing from God to see that, that that is the cycle that happens over and over and over again. You either, as the ones at the top, recognize that, recognize one, the hard cold reality of the, that's the way the world works. Two, recognize the call to God's justice and and do something about it, or judgment's coming. It's not, that's not a crystal ball prediction. It's, that's just the way the world works. What other thoughts you got? That's pretty much it, man. I, the the modern the modern day prophet you know we're here saying hey god's judgment is coming <laughs> well today's conversation has been somewhat of a lengthy one we're going to cut it here for this episode we also got into a conversation about some modern day prophecy and prophets as well as some issues regarding deconstruction and the need for uh, the modern particular evangelical church to enter into that process in order to find the truth of the gospel and what God is trying to say to us here and now. So those parts will be coming in the days to come. Keep an eye out for those. Until then, see you later.